Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue to march along through Matthew's gospel. We started a few weeks ago in Matthew 13. As you're turning there, we remember that this chapter is full of parables. Parables, a particular way in which Jesus taught. And he taught using parables for a few reasons. One, parables illustrate well. Uh, They capture in a succinct way using Images, pictures, illustrations, often agricultural and domestic pictures to capture a biblical truth. They were an effective way of teaching truth. Secondly, he used them to explain the nature of the kingdom. Uh, We remember the majority of the parables are about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Matthew 13 has seven parables, six of them are about an explanation of the kingdom, how his kingdom, how his reign works in this world, what it means to be a part of that kingdom. So he uses it to describe the kingdom. And then third, we saw it is a way of revealing truth, illuminating truth uh, to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. But that same parable, that same word, actually conceals truth to those whose hearts are hard. Remember in chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 6, where the Lord said through Isaiah, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Just a couple of uh, brief comments here. If you look at chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, this is the parable we will focus on. It's the parable of the weeds. It begins in verse 24, goes through verse 30. Then he goes into two more parables, starting in verse 31 to 33. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven, which we will address next week. At the end of that, the disciples then come and ask an explanation for the parable of the weeds. And so he starts the parable in verse 24 and picks it up again, which we will do as we read through in verse 34 to 36 and and following. And then I would just remind us of the song we sang, the opening hymn, uh, 715, verse 2, captures so well what we will hear from God's word. Uh, All the world is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield, wheat and tares, wheat and weeds, together sown unto joy or sorrow grown. Wheat and tares together. So listen now to God's word, Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, 
I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 34. All these things uh, Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This parable, uh, the parable of the weeds, or the wheat and weeds, comes right off the heels of the parable of the sower, perhaps the most well-known of parables. In the parable of the sower, in the beginning of Matthew 13, uh, we learn that the word of the kingdom, the word of the gospel, the seed of the gospel, is sown widely, it is sown broadly in the world, and it falls on various kinds of ground, we learned. And we learn that that ground represents human hearts. Well, here, in the parable of the wheat and weeds, we learn a little bit more about what is happening in the field on the ground, in God's world. And what we learn is that not only is good seed being sown, uh, the word is taking root in the sons of the kingdom, but corrupt seed is being sown. Good seed and corrupt seed, and guess what? It's being sown in the same field. Good and evil in the same field. Who wants good and evil in the same environment, in the same field? They don't mix. It causes conflict. It's uncomfortable. It can lead to tremendous fear. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is describing as a part of the nature of living in this world as sons and daughters of the kingdom. Now all of us, uh, certainly those of you who have traveled over the years by air, by plane, we know just how much 9-11 changed the world in many ways. And it certainly changed airport security, and air transportation. I remember just one year prior to 2001. It was the summer of 2000. My best friend and I were about to board a flight, an international flight. We had gone through security. We were in the boarding area, and right next to us were my parents and one of my brothers and my sister-in-law. They were not going to be boarding the plane with us. They were simply sending us off. One year later, it would be impossible for them to accompany us to the boarding gate. They could not get through security. 9-11 resulted in billions and billions of dollars invested for security to weed out any suspicious threats of terror, of evil, of potential counterfeit identities. And now we're used to it for a couple of decades almost. And now it's routine. The shoes must come off. 
The belt, most of the time, has to come off. The laptop has to come out of the bag. Random searches are applied. 9-11 changed the nature of the environment. And here's how. People could no longer assume and trust that being on the side of the good would result in security and safety. This is also true of the mass school shootings that have happened over the years. There was perhaps an assumption in years past that schools were places of safety and security. The nature of the environment has changed. You can't trust it. And this is in part what we see reflected in the parable. In verse 36, the disciples want an explanation for the parable. Specifically, they say, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Why are there weeds? Who sowed the weeds? And perhaps an all-important question is why would the master allow weeds at all to be sown in his field? Why allow an enemy into the master's territory? Why does God allow evil in the world? Why allow it into even the church? Well, it's likely that behind their question, the disciples' question about an explanation of why you would have weeds, is a very practical reality. Because as the disciples, they have been following Jesus, engaged in his ministry, but what have they been witnessing and experiencing? In the two previous chapters, chapter 11 and 12 of Matthew, we see opposition after opposition, doubts about who Jesus is and his identity. So at the very beginning of chapter 11, you might recall, John, while in prison, had sent word out wondering, is this the one who is to come, or should we expect another? There are questions of Jesus' identity. In chapter 11, verse 20, we remember Jesus began going around from town to town, city to city, pronouncing these judgments. Why? Because the people were not responding to the works that he had done. Here he is, the Messiah the Redeemer, and they're not responding to him. And then three, throughout chapter 12, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leaders, these are the people who have a high view of religious truth. These are your people who would have a high respect for clergy. They are the ones in opposition to Jesus. So if you're one of the disciples You are convinced, you're committed to Jesus as the Messiah, but what are you experiencing and witnessing but non-Messianic responses? So the question is raised. If the kingdom Jesus brings is full of truth and goodness and righteousness, why are the religious leaders, why are the educated, why are the political leaders not embracing it? It's essentially the question, if the kingdom has come, which Jesus began to announce at the very beginning of his ministry, why is there such evil in the world? Why is there not an embrace of the kingdom? What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of king is this? How important this is for us, especially... For Americans, American history is an excellent example to press here with Jesus' parable. Throughout much 
of the history of our nation, many people could count on the Christian position being the dominant position. You could believe at one time. You could assume that the truth will prevail. If you're on the side of the truth, then it will prevail. It's the dominant position on a host of subjects. This was kind of like Gamaliel's advice. Do you remember Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5? This is the Gamaliel who was the mentor, instructor of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin was opposing Peter and John, charging them not to preach the gospel anymore. And Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, spoke up. He said, if this is of God, you won't be able to stop it. But if it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. And he gave some examples of particular men, revolutionaries, whose kind of movements died out. If it's of God, you can't stop it. If it's false, it'll come to nothing. It sounds like good advice, wise uh, wisdom there, but it does not work in determining the truth. It ultimately leaves the truth to to, to be determined by the results. If the truth is on the receiving end of suffering, persecution, on the periphery, on hardship, then the truth does not appear to be favorable. Just last week, we prayed for the persecuted church. There are places all around the world where Christians in the church are the minority, snuffed out, persecuted, pushed out. Would we, would we conclude that they're not on the side of truth? Not at all. Truth, we know, will win in the end. We have read it here in the parable. But until then, there are going to be times and seasons in which the truth does not appear to be prospering. How important it is. Part of what's behind Jesus' parable is a caution about how you measure success. Sometimes there are a lot of weeds. I remember very clearly a friend of mine, he would wear a I'm assuming it was a Christian t-shirt, but it said this, truth is not determined by a majority vote. That is true. The kingdom of God has come, but it has not come in full. It has come into a world full of evil. Now, I want us to hear a few specific points through this parable. First of all, the Lord Jesus has sown you as a son, as a daughter, into the world, right where you are. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. We learn in verse 37 and 38 who is planting this seed and what the good seed is. Verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the Lord Jesus. And then he says the field is the world. And the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. So Christians have been sown into the very fabric of the world. Where you live, where you've been planted, God has specifically and intentionally placed you, each and every one of us. Notice that the field, as I mentioned in verse 38, is the world in this parable. That is, the nations of the earth is what I take that to mean. So You and I have not only been engrafted and adopted into the family of God, the church, we've been placed and sown into the world. Now, the church, it's distinct from the world. 
but it is in the world. Jesus wants us to understand that very clearly. The wheat and the weeds are together in the world. This is what Jesus has already taught them in chapter 10, that whole chapter on mission. I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Similar kind of concept. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, part of the nature of the kingdom is that it rubs shoulders with evil. That might make us uncomfortable. It should. Until the harvest, it cannot evade the presence of evil. Now, God may pluck you out of a certain job or a certain location or a certain relationship or even a particular church, but disciples are called to see that where they are is exactly where God has planted them. So if you are in a hard job or a hard relationship, perhaps, or a hard culture, a hard circumstance, that is not the problem. That's the plan. (laughs) That's the plan. You remember the promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, what did he say to Abraham? I will make you into a great nation and remove you from an evil world. No. No. Rather, that through Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed through you. You've been placed and sown into the world. And of course, the greatest blessing of a nation or society is to receive Christ as Lord, to make God their Lord. So we have been sown into the world. But notice what happens. Because not only is God in Jesus Christ sowing sons of the kingdom, someone else is sowing seeds. This is the nature of the world that God sovereignly rules over. In the same field, the devil, the devil is sowing weeds. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy, the sower's enemy, came and sowed weeds among the wheat, literally among, right in the middle. And then he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Verse 38 and 39. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. It's interesting that while the enemy cannot root out the good seed, We should perhaps think of John 10. Nothing can pluck us out of the Father's hand. However, he is permitted, he is able to plant bad seed right in the middle of the wheat. God has an enemy. God's people have an enemy. It is the devil and his minions. This devil is a real, personal, living being. Now, if you're a philosopher, I'm not, but I ask myself the question, you might ask, where did the devil come from? He just kind of appears in the story. He appears in Genesis. I have a very simple, clear, one-word answer. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what we do know. Number one, God created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive statement. John 1, all things were made through him. All things. Two, we know 
all God made was good. And three, we know that some of what God made good rebelled. Twice in the New Testament, we're told that some angels rebelled against God. They fell into sin. In Jude 6, 2 Peter 2. And there is a hint in Isaiah 14 of one named uh, Morning Star, Day Star. In the King James Version, it's Lucifer who fell from this great height of arrogance to the earth along with his evil offspring. But of course, even if you could answer the question of the devil's origins, you still have the further question, why would God permit such evil? Perhaps that's the question in part the servants are wondering in the parable in verse 27. Master, didn't you sow good seed? Why does it have weeds? Where did these come from? We know for certain, though, this from Scripture. God and the devil do not have equal power. God has the power and God has the right, the prerogative, to remove evil altogether. And indeed, even in the parable, we know he is going to at the harvest. But for now, evil persists. Evil confronts. Evil is being sown. And I want us to take away two things at this point. One, being a Christian and being a Christian church is not safe. It's not safe. I would particularly address those of us raising young children, those of us who are teenagers or young adults. If you're going to walk the path of the Christian faith, understand it is not the norm in our society. It is the exception. It is not the safe path. It is the good path, though. It is the narrow path. You are wheat among weeds. We could say it's safe spiritually. It's the safest place spiritually. But it's not the safest place relationally, socially, physically, even emotionally at times. And then two, by way of application, we must remind ourselves constantly who the enemy is. It's not flesh and blood. That was important enough that Paul wrote it to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, evil forces. How important that is, otherwise we may be fighting the wrong enemy. We are not the enemy. We need each other in the fight against the enemy. We have to encourage one another in the fight. We have to care for one another in the fight. Forgive one another in the fight. We need each other in the midst of it. Now here's the great challenge. Because in this field... In this world, Jesus says the wheat and the weeds must grow up together. That's, those are some hard words. In verse 27, when the servants of the master realize and they understand that an enemy has sown weeds, they're growing up among the wheat, what do they say? Naturally, do you want us then to go and gather the weeds? We've got to do something about the weeds. And what does he say? What are you, crazy? 
No, he doesn't say that. What are you thinking? He just says, no. Do not gather up the weeds. Now remember what defines the field. It is not the church in this parable. It is the world. Within the church, we must, we are commanded to seek to discern and root out evil. Within our corporate body, within our own lives, to purge wickedness. In a few chapters, we will come to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus gives specific instructions how to lovingly, graciously confront sin with one another in our lives. So when Jesus says, don't pull out the weeds, he's not contradicting himself later in chapter 18 or in Galatians chapter 6, or 1 Corinthians 5. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the immoral brother, where Paul encourages the church to purge evil from within. There in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, Paul says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. But this parable here is not as much about our relationship to one another in the church, but our relationship to the world. Why can't we simply pull up the weeds? He tells us the reason in verse 29. No, do not pull up the weeds, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. It can almost feel a little contrary to God's purposes, to let evil grow up. Let the the sons of the evil one grow up. The sort of weed that Jesus is referring to most believe to be darnel. D-A-R-N-E-L. And one commentator said this about it, the roots of wheat in Galilee were weaker than the roots of weeds, so that pulling up weeds near wheat would mean pulling up both. Do you know what darnel looks like? Wheat. It looks like wheat. They'll tell you that. You can look up pictures. It's a kind of mimic weed. Howard Thomas, a professor of biology worked with this weed, sounds exciting, for a few years in a lab, and he said this, Darnell has a double life. It shows up time and again in literary texts. It's in Shakespeare. It is a symbol of subversion. Where there is Darnell, there is treachery and toxicity. Now, it seems to me this is the sort of thing you want to bundle up and be rid of. But we can't. How would you do that? You can't go into your neighborhood and root out all the sons of the evil one. You can't go into the government. You can't go into schools. You can't go into businesses and gather all the Christians into kind of a holy commune and remove all evil. We can't even remove all of the indwelling sin in our own lives within our own heart. Romans 7. I think 
Jesus wants us to feel a sense of tension here about what it means to be in the world as God's people. But that's exciting because it were relevant. I provided a quote from a church historian in your notes if you want to follow along. It's from a professor of mine, John Meather. He's also the uh, librarian at Reformed Theological Seminary down in Orlando. I think this captures so well uh, the tension and our inclination at times. He says, American church history is a story of a search for a new Eden, a new promised land, a new Canaan. But the Bible instructs us that America is the Babylon to which we are called to live and serve. We are called to make Babylon a better place, a better place to live, but we are not called to turn Babylon into Jerusalem. The futility of much of American church history lies in just that, the effort to turn Babylon into Jerusalem, often with disastrous consequences. We are citizens within this world, called to serve this world, but we are all the more citizens of the kingdom of heaven, seeking a better country. I heard one pastor say that we have to be careful not to turn the not yet It's a theological term, into the already. The harvest has not yet come. That is not yet. We can't make it already. We have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. We are already freed from the power and penalty of sin. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, but it has not yet come in its fullness. And we live in that tension. The presence of sin and evil is not yet fully removed. And Jesus here is calling his disciples, he's calling us to leave room for God's final judgment. To not make the not yet the already. Just a few final concluding remarks. One, we see God's long-suffering, his patience. Why? Why is he willing to endure or to tolerate this kind of world where his own children are growing up next to sons of the evil one? 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient, not wanting any to perish. The harvest will not come until he has brought in the fullness of his children, the elect of God. Now, I don't know that that Jesus is communicating this in the parable, but it is a biblical truth. What are now weeds in the world may be elect wheat. As we look out in the world, as we rub shoulders with evil, what appears to be weeds may end up in the end being wheat. We were once a part part from God outside of Christ. God's rich in mercy. I think there's a call and a challenge to be engaged in the world. I know when I was first called to this church, and more particularly this region of the country, some of those closest to me first had words of caution. Yeah, caution about you. That's right. Caution about this part of the country. Why? Because of the godlessness, the darkness in this region of the country. And yet, it made me want to be here all the more. 
There is a, a relevance about being a Christian in a dark place. There's something exciting about that. The darker the world, the brighter the lights of Christ shine, indeed. There's a challenge, there's a call for us. Christ calls us in the world. He's sown us in the world. Through Matthew, he's pressed this. We're salt. But the salt has to get out of the shaker. We are light. Lights of the world. The lights have to be turned on. Chapter 10, we're sheep among wolves. The world lies hopeless uh, apart from the gospel that you and I know and that we possess. There's no hope outside of it for the world. And I think a, a fundamental question for us is this. Through what lens am I viewing these weeds? Through what lens do I view the world? Is it a lens of condemnation? Sort of a judgmentalism? Mere criticism? Does it just anger me and upset me? Is it a lens of hostility? We should examine ourselves. Or is it a lens of truth? The desire for engaging others with the gospel? With the love of Jesus Christ. And then in the end, we should be confident in the world. Our master, our father, is Lord over the entire field. What do we have, ultimately, what do we have to fear? We're going to be singing in just a minute a hymn that we've sung many times. 689, Be Still My Soul. And the scripture reference to that hymn is James 5, 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the preciousness and clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us as sons and daughters within your kingdom, that you have given to us your precious promises that the seed of the gospel, the word of truth, dwells within us, that we know you and we know our dependence upon you. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation in Jesus Christ, for the shedding of his blood, for the remission of sins. And we pray that this very truth uh, we would uh, hold forth in the midst of a world uh, that is indeed full of evil. And yet we we serve under you as our master and our Lord uh, with gladness, with patience, and with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.